If you want to grab your scriptures and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel is one of those books that I teach through in YWAP. It's a special book to me um, because the narratives of 1 Samuel give us a lot of insight into life and godliness. And so we're landing right in the middle of that book. And we're talking about two of the major characters as we read through this. And so I'll try to feed you in, fill you in a little bit on the background, but hopefully you're familiar with 1 Samuel, familiar with Samuel and Saul as well. So let's read together, if you would not mind, 1 Samuel 15, 1 through, I think I'll go to verse 25, okay? And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on their way when they came out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim. 200,000 men on foot, 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. And Saul said to the Kenites, the Kenites were the descendants of the father in, of uh, Moses' father-in-law. He said to the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Zephlar as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me, and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried, to the Lord all night. Samuel rose up early to meet Saul in the morning, and it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, and returned and passed on and went to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul, Saul, and Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? And Saul said, I have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and, to, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak, 
Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have destroyed the Amalekites. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. And the people, but the people took the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. God's command to Saul was the total destruction of the Amalekites. The Amalekites were descendants of Esau, ruthless people who were extremely hostile to Israel. They purposely opposed God and his plan as they tried to destroy the blessing and salvation that God was promising through the line of Abraham. So unprovoked, the Amalek people, the Amalekites, attacked Israel when they were vulnerable and defenseless after crossing the Red Sea. And they were living in the wilderness just before they got to Mount Sinai. And this move was, um, was noted by God. And even uh, as we look at the history of scriptures, we look at Exodus as the proclamation of the salvation of the Lord. So God's justice is proclaimed through the utter destruction of Amalek. Looking into the future, God, knowing the choices of Amalek, would always be in opposition to him and would always be embracing, embracing evil. God said to Moses... In Exodus 17:14, he said this, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek under the heaven. 1 Samuel 15 is where this prophecy comes good, where God makes good on his promise to lift his grace protecting hands from the life of these people. God had patiently given them time to repent over the years, but they would not change. And they were more and more entrenched in their sin. 
Rather than raining down fire from heaven to destroy these people, as God has done in the scriptures, he called on his king and his people to administer the justice. We struggle with this a little bit, don't we, as we look at it? I think we have to sort of stand back and give God room to do what he wants to do, even though he's using his people. A man who is serving in prison for stabbing his girlfriend beat a guard in Stillwater to death with a hammer. And we're outraged. He deserves justice. He deserves punishment. He deserves death. I think we need to, as image bearers of God, be able to broaden our understanding of the larger purposes of God and the judgment that God meted out on Amalek. It should, however, I think, remind us of the final judgment and the punishment in hell of all those who reject God. God's judgment will fall on the entire earth at one time, and those who reject him, like the Amalekites, will be without excuse. Our only hope is to repent and trust in God. And so the command was clear. Was it not completely destroy the Amalekites? God would give them the victory, but everything was dedicated to destruction. God did not want his people to benefit from the spoils of this evil-infested people. Saul's rule as king was marred from the beginning, if you might know. God's people had rejected God. They wanted a king like the other nations. And rather than waiting and trusting on God, they pushed forward and had Samuel anoint Saul. Saul was a tall and handsome guy. He was the type of guy that the Israelites wanted. And so Saul started out on somewhat a promising path as he began. He experienced some success at battle. He showed some leadership early on. But as the narrative progresses through 1 Samuel, we start to see the true heart of Saul is exposed. And little by little, we understand he has a heart of pride. It's what controls him. He took credit for other successes. He was impatient. He was demanding of others, rash in his judgments, brazen in doing it his way. And sadly, his pride kept him from repenting. In our passage, Saul received instruction from Samuel and he prepared to battle. And it seems that he was trusting God from the beginning. Saul went and valiantly battled against the Amalekites. And he drove the Amalek out of their region all the way to the wilderness of Shur, which is just east of Egypt. It was a glorious victory for the Lord that day, except there was one problem. He did not obey what God told him to do. He did not completely destroy the Amalekites. In verse 9 it says, But Saul and the people spared Agag, and the best of the sheep, and of the oxen, and of the fatted calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. Saul did not follow the command of the Lord. He did not communicate the word of the Lord to the people, and he did not enforce the word of the Lord 
to the people. He failed on all counts of leadership. And in his pride, he kept Agag, king of the Amalekites, as a trophy. And at Mount Carmel, he set up a monument to himself. And he allowed the people to keep the good stuff so that they would support him. And he could rally their support. All hell the king. He was basking in victory. Meanwhile, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, expressing God's regret that he had set up Saul as king. He was disappointed, and he expressed that to Samuel. And so Samuel, the Bible said he cried all night. I think there was a certain hope in Samuel's heart that God was the God that took evil things and used them for good. And he knew that the people's heart were evil. Their decision to make this king was evil. But his hope, I think, was that Saul would be that righteous leader. And finding this out was heartbreaking to him. What happens in the following verses and is the exchange between Samuel and Saul, where Samuel tries to lead Saul to repentance, Saul's responses to Samuel's prodding does not work. We see Saul's pride undermine the opportunity for repentance. It's often an effective tool to look at a bad example to set us straight on a matter, is it not? And that's what I want to do with the topic here this morning of repentance with the time that we have remaining. In Saul, we see how pride kept him from the blessings of true repentance. And hopefully we'll be convicted to consider how maybe pride does that to us as well, keeps us from repentance. Repentance is a hallmark of Christianity, is it not? Without it, there is no relationship with God. And without it, human relationships really are ruined. After Paul or Peter, in his famous message at Pentecost, ended and the people said, what shall we do? Peter said, repent. Right? Repent. It is the message of the New Testament. So I think it will be important for us that we have a good understanding of what it means to repent. What is repentance? Here is my definition of it that I stole bits and pieces from others. A contrite spirit that openly admits to the gravity of wrongdoing and changes course. There's a contrite spirit, sorrow, to realize that you have failed God, that you've done what's wrong, that openly admits to the seriousness of sin and changes course. I think we see in the prodigal son a picture of repentance that is helpful After taking his father's inheritance and squandering it in reckless living, finally, while dying with pigs, he came to his senses. He came to the point of repentance. Listen to the words of a repentant wrongdoer. I will rise and go to my father. I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. He went home. He opened the doors of his soul, unloaded the rotten sin of all that he had done, willing to accept his punishment and restore his relationship with his father. This is repentance. This is the repentance of the New Testament. It had been a hot and rainy summer around the farm where Uncle Tom 
and his two adopted nephews lived. Such weather made work around the farm particularly burdensome. It was bothersome and burdensome to begin with, but with the heat and all the muck, it was almost unbearable to the boys. The boys, Billy Bob and Johnny, had chores, of course. And one of these chores was scooping out the manure in the barn and hauling it to the manure pile. Some of you grew up maybe doing that as a chore. As you might suspect, it was a particularly odious job under such conditions. It was the weather, though, that had brought Uncle Tom's attention to a very huge problem. The water had washed away the dirt and the manure around one of the corner posts of the barn, and Uncle Tom saw, to his dismay, the post was completely rotted off. And upon poking the siding a little bit, he found out the siding all the way up a ways was spongy. He stood back a little bit and looked closer at the barn and noticed that not only was the one post rotten off, but there were others that were rotten. And he gave it a push and it moved like a barn's not supposed to move. It had rotted out and was on the verge of collapsing. It was a death trap. How had all this destruction happened, he said to himself. The barn was old, but it was not that old. There were other barns in the area that were twice as old as this barn, and they were still standing true and firm. So he went around the corner and through the barn door, and then something dawned on him. The floor on the barn was a certain level at the door, and it was a different level around the edges. He grabbed a pitchfork and headed to one of the corners, and he started digging. Fifteen inches later, he hit the original dirt floor of the barn. There were years and years of manure built up over time that had created a safe haven for rot and worms to eat away at the barn. It was time to bring the boys in on the discussion (laughs) to show them that their work had not been done so well and that they needed to pay attention, look at the destruction that this had caused, the dangers of letting manure build up on the barn. The barn, though, in time, was born again. Manure was removed, the old structure was torn down and hauled away and burnt, and a new barn was rebuilt. New posts were set down into the ground, filled with concrete. Rafters were squared and attached in place. Siding and roof were put on the barn, and the animals were brought back into their new home. But as the saying goes, where there are no oxen, the barn is clean, means that, well, when you have oxen in the barn, it's constantly in need of cleaning. And with the fresh reality of the dangers of manure building up in the barn, the boys were ever so vigilant in cleaning the manure out of the barn and hauling it to the manure pile. And of course, Uncle Tom was inspector general, and he made sure the manure operation worked properly from here on out. No longer would manure be allowed to accumulate in the corners and eat away at the barn. I tell you this story because I think it really pictures the push of what I want to say to you this morning. Our souls are like the barn. They're rotten from sin, and they're a death trap, for we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
Our soul is redeemed through repentance as we clean the house, expose our true self to the fresh air of the gospel where there's forgiveness of sin. And because of the work of Christ on the cross, sin can be forgiven. Without the gospel and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, repentance is just moving the manure around in the barn. There's no place for it to go. The gospel is the gate for the manure. And as we repent and believe in Jesus, the manure, the sin, is removed to the heap. And God builds us a new barn. The Bible says that when we make this step of repentance, this initial step of repentance, that we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. And yet in this new barn, if you've made that step of faith, there is a constant need to sort of keep the floor clean through the work of repentance and the work of the gospel. We continue to sin, and like manure, sin will accumulate. The shortcomings of repentance will allow sin to accumulate and in time will cause our soul to rot even in the new barn. So repentance in the gospel is not only the gateway to life in Christ, but it is a constant work of the believer to clean the manure out of his life, to clean the sin out of his life. Pride will keep you from true repentance. And the responses that Saul exhibits in this passage are rooted in pride. And they kept Saul from repentance and will keep you from repentance as well. It could be that these tools of pride are keeping you from the gateway, stopping you from repenting and becoming a believer and stepping into Christianity. And it may be that these tools of pride are keeping you from the ongoing work of repentance in your life, where like manure, the sin is allowed to accumulate and to rot your soul, your relationship with God, and your relationship with others. Either way, take heed, if you would, to not follow Saul's bad example in this passage, okay? There are seven verses that contain Saul's response to Samuel's prodding. And I think in these, I'm not going to just take one verse, because they're sort of, some of his responses are sort of spread out, and I've grouped them together. But we see these tools of pride that keep Saul from repenting throughout this passage. And I'm going to sort of put them into four categories for you here this morning. And I will say to you that these are the responses to sin that will keep you from repenting. Okay? So four responses to sin that will keep you from repenting. And I would say to you, don't do this. All right? This is a bad example. We heard... Psalm 51, which is a good example of repentance. We see here the things that kept Saul from repentance, kept him from getting a clean heart, okay? To blink, to blame, to balance, and to blow off. These are the four responses to sin that I think will keep you from repentance. I'll explain. I think some of them need some explaining, don't you? So let's explain a little bit, okay? Blinking. The first response to sin that will keep you from repenting is blinking at sin. The term means to not just blink the eye. It means also to deny the recognition of something. So in this case, to deny the recognition of sin. Maybe this cartoon says it. I didn't do it. Nobody saw me do it. 
you can't prove anything. That maybe is a picture of blinking at sin. The idea is that you don't recognize sinful actions in your life at all and certainly not recognize the significance of sinful actions in your life. Blinking at sin is an act of minimizing your sin and acting as if maybe it didn't happen at all. A couple verses here that I pull out to show you this response from Saul. Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. This was his first response when he saw Samuel. And then later on he says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have, done, I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. Upon greeting Saul, upon greeting Samuel, Saul proclaims that he has performed the commandment of the Lord. There is a sense in this verse that Saul actually believes that he's convinced himself that he actually has done what God asked him to do. I mean, he certainly had done a lot, right? I mean, he defeated them. The facts do not match up, though, and it doesn't let him continue on down this path. And later on, we see that he again repeats this concept that he's actually obeyed the Lord when indeed he hasn't. And Samuel has given him proof of such. I think there's a warning to us all in this. We can become so accustomed to our sin and our sinful attitudes that we just doesn't even register with us. We simply move on. No thought. We need to pray to God that he would open our eyes to see these things, that we'd be diligent in examining ourselves and that we'd ask others for help. That's what a church is for to interact with others so they may see maybe some of your blind spots. I think with Saul, his blink at sin was more defined. He had won a great battle. He had fought heroically in some regards. He has built a monument to himself, and quite frankly, he was at the top of his game. The small details of God's commands of destroying everything just really weren't very important to him. And I think there's a warning to us in this as well. It's a dangerous place to be, is it not? When you're successful and things are going your way, it tends to blind us and it tends to empower us to sort of drop our guard a little bit. It's a big area of temptation. There's a couple ways, I think, that we blink at sin. And various degrees, I think, that plays into our lives. One is that we emphasize the good that maybe came of something, even though it was wrong sometimes to the point of even ignoring it because it created so much good, right? We play it down. It didn't hurt anybody. We play down the fact that it didn't hurt anybody. It had no effect. We minimize it. Comparatively speaking, it was sort of small. We concentrate on the other good things that we're doing. More on that in a minute. And we call it a mistake. These are some of the ways that we handle sin in our lives. We don't look at it as a front to God. And so we're reminded in this exchange that partial obedience is not obedience, right? I think we have to struggle with this just a little bit because I think we all partially obey, do we not? Being a good parent, a husband, and a wife most of the time is not acceptable to God. This is simply not acceptable to God. And you go, wow sort of a high standard, isn't it? Well, 
That's why we have repentance. That's why we need to clean the barn a little bit, and that's why we have it. Here are some ways that blinking and sin find their way into your everyday life, and I think it can be patterns that we develop. Number one is we become defensive. We're quick to defend ourselves whenever somebody gives us any negative feedback or claims that maybe we've done something wrong and consequently have very little conversation with anybody that's meaningful about difficult things in our lives. We fake it, striving to keep an appearance of a respectable image. We live a life that's somewhat controlled by what everybody else thinks. And as a result, people don't really know the real you. We conceal from others. We have a hermit mentality where we have the surface conversations and we get away into our house in a way and we don't really open ourselves up. We exaggerate. We think more of ourselves than we ought to. We make ourselves out to be better than what we really are. And we tilt the story in our favor whenever we're telling the story, making ourselves look good. Ultimately, all sin is against God, and the gravity of that should grab a hold of your heart. It did, David. You heard it as Rich read that. Just one verse from that text, it says, Against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. And so as we blink at sin, we leave it on the floor of our barn and allow it to accumulate and rot out our soul. Number two, blaming. The second response to sin that keeps us from repenting is blaming. It is the universal best tool in pride's toolbox. It's a leatherman of sorts. It's a tool that works in all different circumstances to put down the need for repentance. Just blame somebody else, right? Not my fault. There's plenty of other people, plenty of other sinners that we can tag this onto. Adam used this tool on the first sin. He said, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. And so Saul went to this trusty um, tool as well, this trusty tool of pride. In three different occasions here in 15, he said, I have brought them. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. But the people took the spoil the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction. And in 24, he says, I sinned. I feared the people and obeyed their voices. Blaming people for not completely, blaming his people for not completely destroying the Amalekites is rather ridiculous, coming from a king who was given the order and who had complete control. And... Most of the time, blaming others when you do something wrong is pretty ridiculous as well. Did they really make you do it? So how are you around the office and at home? Are you quick to tag it on to somebody else? Blame someone else for the project that's not getting done? Blame your wife or your husband for the family problems? Blame your parents for your stinking attitude? Blame other Christians because they're hypocrites? Blame others because they don't show me love and chase me down when I'm hurting. It goes on and on, does it not? Blaming goes beyond just people, though. We can blame circumstances. We can blame the job, the environment, the bad news. I was going to say President Trump, but he's not a he's a person, too, I guess. Right. Government, health care. There's a list of things that we can blame as we 
look around us. There is no doubt that others have an influence on our lives, and yet ultimately we're responsible for doing what is right and having a good spirit. Blaming flies in the face of what we hear throughout the scriptures. We heard it in the class this morning about work, that we're supposed to work as unto the Lord, that we're supposed to uh, be bosses as unto the Lord, that we're supposed to serve in our family as husbands, as wives, as unto the Lord. These are the commands of scriptures. We do not work for people. And so this whole idea of blame shifting or putting the blame somewhere else ultimately is shot down by the New Testament. And really, when you think about it, ultimately blaming others really is blaming God, is it not? He gave you your wife. He gave you your husband. He gave you your kids, your parents, your job, your neighbors. These are all things that God has given to you. And if indeed they're the problem, then you're blaming God for those things. So if you want to pour water on the fire of conviction and repentance and follow Saul's bad example, play the blame game. Play the blame game. Try to say that right. At the end, blaming will hurt your soul more than others because it leaves sort of sin piled up on the floor of your soul, rotting away, pushing to the corners, and rotting away at your soul. Psalm 51.3 says, For I know my transgressions, they are ever before me. There was no blame in David's repentance. Number three, balancing. The third response to sin is that the third response to sin that will keep you from repentance is balancing. Okay, What I mean by balancing is trying to balance out your sin with outward forms of worship and good deeds, with the belief that this will sort of cover it all over, that will sort of make up for it. We see this in a couple of verses in our, pack, in our text this morning. In verse 15 it says, For the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And in verse 21, But the people took the spoils, the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgad, Gilgal. Saul thought that using the things that God had commanded to destroy as a sacrifice to God would be justification for his sin. It was a slap in the face of God. It's like someone stealing money and giving it in the offering plate and saying he's doing a deed for God. We say keep your money. Give it back to its rightful owner, and as we should. And this is, this is essentially what God is saying. We do not play the balance game with God. God has nothing to do with this, all right? Because we have nothing to give God. God despises an outward show of worship and good deeds that comes from a heart of an unrepentant person. We see this in Amos as he uh, berates the people of God for this very thing. He says there, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer, me your burnt, you offer me your burnt offering and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. The, to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. 
says God. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. This was Amos's prophecy towards the people of God. This is what they were doing. They were doing all these religious activities with unrepentant hearts and not bowing before God and confessing their sins. Acceptable worship of God comes from a repentant sinner and a clean heart. Jesus said this, there will be more joy in heaven for one repentant sinner than 99 righteous ones that do not need repentance. If you have this sort of balancing picture in your head where your faithful church attendance, your trips on missions trips, serving the church as a leader, singing like you love Jesus, helping out a neighbor and these other types of things sort of sets on one side. And the other side, it balances out maybe your luck, lack of love at home, your cranky spirit at work, your disobedience to God in so many other different ways that sort of surface. If we sort of have this picture in your head, and I think to varying degrees, we do, all right? It is a common picture for Christianity. It's, it's prevalent. So if you have this picture, take it out of your head, put it on the counter, and break it with a hammer, okay? <laughs> it's not biblical. It assumes that we have some value to give to God, that we can repay him in some way, and we can sort of balance things out. We have nothing to give to God. We only have to get from him, and that is his grace as we humble ourselves before him. Our worship is out of thanksgiving. The singing, the things we do here is out of thanksgiving for what he has done for us, not to sort of balance out the things that we've done wrong in our lives. Psalm 51:17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So balancing will keep you from repentance and will add to the manure of sin in your barn. Sprinkling some good smelly stuff over the top of it will not do much. Really. Sin has to be cleaned out by the work of repentance and out the gate of gospel. Lastly, the last thing that will keep you from repentance, blowing sin off. Blowing it off is a little bit different than blinking at it, okay? It has more of the idea of, let's just get this over with and get on with life. Okay, so I did it. I said I'm sorry already, okay? What more do you want me to do? It is this type of attitude that does not, really see the significance of sin. And we see this in uh, Saul's life here in these two verses. Now, therefore, please pardon me and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. You see his emphasis on getting beyond it and putting it in his past and not dealing with it directly. In verse 30, he says, I have sinned and yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord, your God. Notice the, the your rather than his God. Repentance doesn't come with the demand for restoration, does it not? It simply leaves that in the hands of God. Saul clearly wanted to save face, to sort of get on with things. It's a sure sign of avoiding repentance. You know, repentance will cost you something. Mark it down. Repentance will cost you something. 
And it's rather interesting that a lot of times the thing that it costs you is your possessions. John came saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And there are these different groups of people that come up to him and ask him this question. Then what shall we do? The first was the crowd. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with one who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, we're repenting. What should we do? Collect no more than you're authorized to do, John says. The soldiers also asked him, We're repenting. What should we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, but be content with your wages. And so as you look at these things, each one of these things are losing something, aren't they? Saul was going to lose something if he obeyed God and if he repented. It probably wasn't possessions in his case. It probably was reputation. It was probably his you know, glorified view of himself, these types of things. But if you're going to truly repent, you're going to lose something and you need to be willing to lose it. If you're not, then you're simply blowing it off. Just saying I'm sorry doesn't cut it. It needs a little bit more work to get to the bottom of the issue. You need to come to the place where you can articulate what you have done wrong. I see a lot of good examples here at Eden Baptist Church of good parenting. All right, The kid says, I'm sorry. And the parent says, for what are you sorry? What did you do that you need to apologize for? What was wrong with that? What are those questions doing? They're good questions. They're questions parents ought to ask their kids. It's making them think about the fact that they have done something that deserves some punishment or some type of correction. I'm sorry, and let's move on, is not true repentance. It's good for parenting. It's also good for all of us to ask ourselves the same question when we repent. What exactly are we repenting for? I find that sort of short in my prayers. <laughs> God forgive me for being proud, proud, or whatever the case may be. Quick little thing to move on to the next. We need to do a little soul searching in these areas. Couples and families can easily fall into the trap of just saying, I'm sorry. Because it eases tension, doesn't it? It sort of lets us go on and move on. But really, how does repentance work? How do you change if you don't even really can articulate what you've done wrong. It's really not repentance at all, is it? David said, purge me with hyssop. I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And so this morning, we looked at four things that will keep you from exchanging your sin for repentance. Four things that will keep you from the joy of knowing a heart cleaned in Jesus Christ. Quickly review Blinking at sin, blaming others, balancing, I think I have this on a slide, balancing our sin with our worship and blowing off sin, saying, I'm, I'm just sorry. Get it over with. Let's move. These are the four things. These are tools of pride that will keep you from the blessing of repentance. They are things that will allow sin to build up in your life and rot away at your soul. And though it's hard I'm sure it was hard for David. There's so much freedom in repentance. Is there not? 
carrying the load of sin is, is worrisome. To unload it, be done with it, and know that the blood of Christ will cover it. In Psalm 51, David was cleaning out his soul. He was exposing it to the fresh air of the gospel. And unlike Saul, he laid bare his soul and dumped out all his sin before God. Saul, on the other hand, blinked at sin, blamed others, tried to balance it out with religious activity, and simply wanted to make a quick apology and move on. And in his pride, he harbored sin in his life, and it rotted away at his soul. It will do the same thing for you. Today, maybe is a good day for a barn cleaning. Maybe it's a good day for a new barn. Maybe you've never taken that initial step of repentance. Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross makes it all possible. Without it, there is no repentance. There's no true forgiveness. We praise God. That's who we worship here this morning, Jesus Christ, because he's opened the gate for us to do repentance. A broken and contrite heart God will not despise.